Before we get started with today's podcast, I want to take this opportunity to ask you when the last time it was that you changed out the air filter in your home. Now, would you believe that most people don't change out their air filters monthly or even know that they have to change them out monthly or until they realize that something is actually wrong with their HVAC system? That's why I want to introduce to you Second Nature Air Filters. Now, what's so special about them? Not only are they effective at capturing the dust, pollens, the molds, uh, you know, the, the bacteria, but they also help reduce the energy usage of your HVAC system up to 15% and avoid costly repairs whenever it matters the most. But let's be real. The real reason you're not changing your air filters, duh, is because you forget half the time. You're like how I used to be. That's why I went with Second Nature Air Filters. Second Nature has created a subscription plan to send your home's air filters each month right to your door, which forces you to change out your old air filters before the new one arrives, keeping your air clean and your HVAC system in working condition. I've certainly noticed that regular replacement of my home's air filters has reduced the amount of dust flying around in my place, but has also reduced how much I've been sneezing in my place. Before, I was changing out my air filter every three months and I was sneezing constantly. Now that I change out my filter monthly, I hardly ever sneeze. This is all thanks to Second Nature's filter subscription plan, and it's the one delivery that I actually look forward to every month. Get started with Second Nature Air Filters today with my referral link at thepodcasttherapist.com slash second nature. Mixdown Media Productions. When you're one unbalanced piece of audio from losing your shit. This is The Podcast Therapist. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of The Podcast Therapist. I'm your host, The Shan Man, radio broadcaster, podcaster, and podcast producer. And this is the week of March 8th, and we are going to be talking about putting your podcast up onto YouTube. Is this a good idea? Is it not a good idea? What are the things I should be expecting when it comes down to putting a podcast onto YouTube? Is it worth my time? There's a lot of questions that are revolving around this very topic, and there are a lot of people who have varying opinions about putting their podcast up onto YouTube. And so what I want to share with you in today's episode are basically the ways I have seen success with my own YouTube channel. As of this recording, uh, I have, well, not as of this recording, but I have actually surpassed the 10,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. So to me, I consider that a huge success. I would still consider getting a thousand subscribers on my YouTube channel as a success. But I've also uh, crested over 700,000 views onto YouTube. And I'm going to tell you why that number does not matter. That number really does not matter. So I will share with you some of the things that I think are very important for you and your podcast and whether it should be going up onto your YouTube channel. Okay. So we're going to go over that. And I'm going to, of course, we're going to go over some news today. I I want to talk to you about Clubhouse. There's some news that has developed about Clubhouse and their terms of service. Also, Spotify uh, is jumping into the paid subscription game. So I want to cover that and we will answer a little bit later some viewer and listener questions that uh, are specific to podcasting. So uh, stay tuned for that uh, here after a little while. But let's get to some news real quick and talk about that uh, Clubhouse news. Now, you might have listened to the episode about Clubhouse where a few episodes ago where I talked about whether or not you should be using Clubhouse as a means to create content to be repurposed as a podcast later on down the line. And I've had some, I don't know if you would call them strong opinions about Clubhouse, but my basic opinion of Clubhouse is that it's still too new of a platform to understand what we can and can't do. It is right now very very brand new, new days, gold rush type days 
within the platform. There are people on there that are creating great, great amounts of content, but the problem is that it's only available for people who are on iOS. Now, uh, since that podcast was released, Twitter has come out with their own version of Clubhouse, which was something that was already in the works as it is, Twitter Spaces. And uh, in fact, I find Twitter Spaces to be more friendly, user-friendly, and I find it to have more features. Uh, so it's gonna be a real battle as to see what uh, which platform is going to survive more. Uh, just as a, you know, as a note, just to, as a reminder, this has happened in the past with different applications. I'm not sure if you remember back in the past when uh, Meerkat was debuted at South by Southwest. I can't remember which year that was, but Meerkat was the live streaming platform that everyone was excited about. But once Twitter and Facebook got into the game, Meerkat just happened to go away. They did not. They were not able to figure out or uh, capitalize on how to really make that platform pop. And so Twitter and Facebook already had the infrastructure within the platforms themselves, and that's why we saw success with the with at least uh, Periscope for a short time. But you know, Facebook Live has really done a great job of uh, building in the infrastructure for their live feeding platforms. But that's not what I want to get into today. I really want to get into the Clubhouse. Uh, terms of service. And today there was some news that was released that talked about that uh, the terms of service have changed for Clubhouse. And as I had mentioned in previous episodes about Clubhouse, I mentioned that you could not record podcast episodes because the terms of service prohibited the content creator from recording any episodes and then redistributing back out. Now, now as of today, those, or I have to say as of today, today is Monday, March 8th when I'm recording this. But as of today, those terms of service have updated to say that Clubhouse now allows creators to record the conversations, but the speakers must give expressed consent. So we can see this, uh, I guess, beginning of evolution with Clubhouse when it comes to developing podcasts on the fly on the platform. Now, what does that look like as far as value is concerned on the flat platform? I don't know. We don't know what that looks like. But what I do know is that when you are creating value on a platform uh, where it, you're sharing experiences, you're sharing or you're teaching someone how to do something, then it tends to be a better user experience. So we're still looking at the evolution of Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces. We'll see how that all works out. I don't know, but as of right now, it looks as though you can record these, uh, I guess, Clubhouse meetings uh, as long as you, the speaker gives consent to being recorded. So that's some interesting news. So let's go ahead and switch gears on over to Spotify. This is an article that came off of Forbes a couple weeks ago, and they talked about Spotify uh, planning to test paid podcast subscriptions, with I th which I think is a very good thing for podcasters and content creators who already have an audience but have not figured out a way to monetize. Now, uh, Patreon has been, I guess, the leader in this space, but not everyone likes the idea of using Patreon because, you know, even though it is like an external website, there are some limitations that come with Patreon, and of course, uh, we can get into the whole into the whole RSS feed, the private RSS feed for private podcasts. We can get into that here very shortly, and I might have a solution for you if this is something that you might be thinking of doing. But the news is that Spotify is launching the subscription podcasting service, uh, which you have to get on a wait list for. So uh, you do have to get on a wait list in order to do that. Um, you know. I would just wait until the testing is done with it, but it's going to allow you, the creator, to create a podcast content that you can publish that people can pay for. And this seems to be, um, I guess, a growing interest with listeners. They are more likely 
to, uh, I guess you could say, contribute to a podcast that is developing content as opposed to not doing that. Because you know, as a podcast content creator, that creating content takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work. And so, uh, I mean, for me, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to create content. Um, because, well, it's about the content development really it is for me. It's about the research, but it's not so much the editing because I've got my editing game down. So I understand that for you, you know, it might be a little bit different. The editing game might be a little bit more, but I think the general idea here is that listeners are more likely to contribute to someone who develops quality, valuable content at a smaller premium than say, listening to ads. It doesn't mean that they won't listen to ads because they understand that podcasters need to have some type of ad platform or maybe some type of ad strategy within their public podcast that is on Apple Podcasts. You hear here on the Podcast Therapist, but uh, they are more likely to contribute uh, funds to help out that content creator. So that is something that I think is very interesting, and I'm glad that Spotify is really testing this out. Apple Podcast, is uh, there's been talks about this uh, being implemented into their platform as well. And I know that Anchor, uh, Anchor, which is owned by Spotify, they have, um, I think they have an option for you to create paid podcast subscriptions with listeners. Now, I think you know what my opinion is of Anchor. It's not that I hate the company at all, but I do not find the platform to be as effective as I think it could be for a free platform. If it were going, I would like to see Anchor to be like the YouTube for audio podcasting, but they just, they fall short. Now this might change in the future. And if it does change, then hey, I might consider moving my podcast over to into Anchor. But there are already podcast hosting platforms like Buzzsprout, Libsyn, Blueberry, Simplecast, all, you know, Podbean. They have all perfected the game of podcast hosting. And some of those platforms have incorporated that paid uh, podcast subscription model where you people can pay you to, you know, subscribe to your podcast. Anchor does this, but I do not like the idea of Anchor owning the accounts or the, the syndication accounts, the distribution accounts to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, what is the other one? There's a couple of others that are out there, but you, th- those are for the most part are the ones that I'm w- most concerned about. The majority of people who listen to podcasts are listening on Apple Podcasts. It's still the dominant uh, podcasting app, although Spotify is probably going to take that over because it is a little more ubiquitous. People can use it on every platform, iOS or Android. And that to me is a big game changer. But for right now, people are mostly listening to podcasts on Apple Podcasts. But it doesn't mean that people aren't listening on Spotify. These are just numbers that happen to be out there. You can look them up on Edison Research. But this is something that I think that you should be considering and thinking about later on down the line with your podcast, or maybe it's something that you want to incorporate right now. Now, I want to jump into this topic of uh, how you would position your podcast for someone to be a paid subscriber. This is all part of an article that Tom Webster of Edison Research had written, uh, I believe on the same week in which this article from Forbes was uh, released. And he has no problem with podcasters uh, looking to get paid subscriptions, but he thinks as though, and this is just my interpretation of what his article is all about. He wrote an article that talked about subscription confusion and the state of podcasting data. 
And the problem is, is that when you ask someone to subscribe to your podcast, just as you do right now, there's still a part of the population who listen to the po- who listen to podcasts who think that you are paying to listen to a free podcast. So there might be this confusion when it comes down to getting someone to pay to listen to an ad-free version of the podcast or get exclusive content to the podcast and how do we you know how do we position that message to our listeners to say hey I do have the same podcast, but it is ad-free or it has bonus content or it gives you extra whatever it may be. How do we position that message to those people who listen to a current free podcast who are already, quote unquote, subscribed to the podcast? Tom writes in his article, and I quote here, he says, the reason they believe this and still do is simple. That troublesome word we use to describe the behavior we want from our audience, subscribe, end quote. So when it comes down to delivering the message, how do we do that? Well, something that I had learned from one of my own, I guess you could call them paid subscribers if I were to look at it that way, uh, paid subscribers on my Facebook page, they're called supporters. And the way that one listener told me to position it to make it not sound so, I don't know, salesy gross, he said, just call it a contribution. You don't even have to call it a donation. You're just contributing to the podcast. You're contributing support to the podcast. And then, of course, you can say why you would want to contribute to the podcast and the reasons and the benefits that the listener is going to gain when it comes to contributing to the podcast. So when you're offering paid subscriptions for your podcast, position it as a contribution to help the content creator. Because that might come in a little bit more handy as opposed to saying subscribe. So I want to illustrate real quick what that looks like. Because when we create free content for our podcast and we distribute it to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all those platforms. I want to illustrate what that looks like for you when it comes down to getting a paid subscriber. Now as you have heard me talk about in previous episodes... You've heard me talk about the sales funnel, and I talk about this. I'll I'll leave a link for that podcast in the show notes for today so that you can go ahead and check that out, but I talk about the sales funnel and what the value is of the free content that you are delivering in those podcasts. When you deliver free, valuable content, hopefully you can build up enough trust within your listener or your viewer or your reader to where they would be more than willing to contribute to your efforts because they know that not only is the content valuable, but it does take time. So when we publish a podcast, that is the free version. That would be considered our, what they would say in an industry term, our lead magnet. It's something that we are making people aware of when we want them to come into our orbit or our universe or our space and they get this valuable content. Within the podcast itself, hopefully, you are able to promote that there is an a premium version or an ad-free version of your podcast somewhere along the lines to where people can get these podcasts maybe early, maybe they get extended content, maybe they are getting uh, you know, it's ad-free, 
Uh, maybe within the paid version, you're adding maybe an extra episode. I mean, the ideas are really kind of endless when it comes down to this. You can get many examples from the Patreon models, but this is something that I think you can consider. So we start with that free piece of content that we are distributing on those platforms, and then we embed some type of awareness that we have a paid platform in order to get someone to come in and listen to our podcast ad-free or pay for that content. So that's a real quick sales funnel. So once they come in and they subscribe, then you're delivering on those promises. Now, what are those platforms and what are some of those platforms that we can use? Well, you've obviously heard of Patreon. You can definitely do that. You know, I have uh, friends who do this already. In fact, I believe, and I talked to him last week, my friend James, Jimmy Wisman from the uh, Crime and Sports Podcast and Small Town Murder Podcast, uh, he talks about how they're like, they rank in the top 20, I think, of Patreons or patrons on Patreon for getting, I guess, I don't know, you would call them donations or con- uh, contributions. So that might be a good idea to go look at what they are doing and maybe listening to their podcast and uh, finding out how they are getting people to contribute to their podcast. Patreon may not be the answer to you know this question that you might be having about creating premium paid subscriptions for your listeners. Uh, you know, maybe there's just this disjoint feeling that you have with Patreon. For me, that's what it feels like. It just feels as though when you direct someone from Apple Podcasts or when they're listening to your podcast and say, "Hey, contribute to our Patreon. Go to Patreon.com/slash and then whatever," they have to actually enter in a. Uh, you know, an address or they go to the show notes and they can access it from there. And then, of course, the best user experience, I believe, is by using the Patreon app, which is not a problem whatsoever. But my biggest issue with Patreon is that when you create the premium content, the RSS feed that you use for private podcasts is not protected. And when I say that not protected, it means that once someone contributes to your paid content, that RSS feed can be shared with other fans of your podcast and um, it's not giving you, the content creator, all the money. Now, let's not say that, let's say that not everyone is like that. Let's say and assume that people are going to be honest and they're going to pay the content creator the money. But I don't like that that lack of security when it comes down to the RSS feed. So uh, that's my biggest problem with Patreon. Maybe they have fixed that. I don't know. I don't play on Patreon as much as maybe I should, but it's just something that I don't, plan on using for paid subscription models. Now, there are other hosting platforms that utilize this. Libsyn allows you to do this with their uh, their service plan. Now, you have to have, I believe, as a requirement, a certain amount of downloads, I believe. Uh, you can check that out for yourself on Libsyn's website, but I also know that whenever you create premium content and you put a price on it, that I believe Libsyn takes a larger cut than normal for those services. So that might not be an option for you. I believe Podbean allows you to do this. Uh, CastBox has their own version of this. So you can do your research on this, but I have come across a platform called Supercast that pretty much is everything that I was thinking when it came down to creating this content itself. Uh, Supercast allows you to create premium content not only on their platform, but they allow you to create private RSS feeds for individual subscribers. So, in other words, 
When someone subscribes or contributes to your podcast, they get their own individualized RSS feed so that when you publish content to your uh, gated content, that they still get that delivered, but they cannot share that RSS feed with friends. That means if it's shared with friends, then I believe that you can disable their account and say like, I see that you're using this from a different IP address. You don't want to do that. Um, or, or you, you know, it's, it's multiple IP addresses. I'm going to have to disable your account. That's what I would want as a content creator. I'd want some layer of security, but supercast actually was a very useful website and platform when it came down to creating this type of content. So I recommend that you go give it a look and it might give you some ideas when it comes down to paid podcast subscriptions. So to recap real quick. Spotify, they're getting into the podcast subscription game. They're testing it out right now. Tom Webster is trying to figure out or has this problem with how we position to get people to subscribe to our podcast in a paid manner. My solution is just by telling your listeners to contribute to the podcast, give them a reason why they would want to contribute to your podcast for the content that you create. Then I would recommend looking at least looking at Supercast. It's uh, supercast.tech. I'll leave a link in today's show notes so that you can go ahead and check it all out and, uh, you know, kind of explore that platform. So that's the news that I wanted to cover last week that I'm covering today. I mean, we could probably make this kind of like a a John Oliver thing, you know, last week's news this week. But uh, that's the news that I really wanted to cover. And that was the big stuff that I think that you as the podcaster should take note of. Coming up here very shortly, I'm going to be going into whether or not we should be putting our podcast on to YouTube. This is the stuff that I think you're interested in listening for. So that's all coming up next. You're listening to The Podcast Therapist. Right now, you might be in the middle of the research phase of launching your podcast. Maybe you've gotten some equipment, signed up for a Zoom account, and have recorded a few podcast episodes. But what steps do you need to take when it comes to a successful podcast launch? Would you believe the biggest mistake podcasters make is the launch sequence? Seriously, just like a space shuttle has a sequence to put astronauts into space, podcasts have sequences to put a podcast in the marketplace successfully. That's why I created the Podcast Launch Checklist. After helping numerous clients build their podcasts, I developed a step-by-step guide to help podcast creators just like you have a clean launch sequence without wasting time. The Podcast Launch Checklist is a 12-step sequence that walks you through the pre-launch, mid-launch, and post-launch process with specific steps and instructions that will save you time. If you're tired of walking around in the dark trying to figure out everything that comes with a podcast launch, you can grab the Podcast Launch Checklist today. Visit thepodcasttherapist.com slash PLC and use the code PODTHERAPIST, all one word, to get 25% off this checklist today. Today's episode of The Podcast Therapist is brought to you by the Adobe Creative Cloud. Creativity is everywhere, and all you need are the right tools to turn those creative ideas into reality. Whether it's building stunning new artwork to promote your podcast, editing simple videos for your video podcast, or stepping up your audio production game, the Adobe Creative Cloud gives you access to Adobe's entire suite of software products that will enhance your content creation across all digital platforms. Go to thepodcasttherapist.com slash adobe to learn more and get started today. It's time for the mix down. The podcast therapist. 
Every few weeks, maybe every couple months, I get a podcaster that comes to me and they say, well, I want to put my podcast up onto YouTube because I hear that is the thing that you need to do in order to promote your podcast and get more listeners. And I always kind of just, I hesitate and really kind of bite my tongue a little bit because I know what it takes to build content for YouTube. And that's what I want to explore today with you in today's Mixdown. I want to talk to you, I guess, a little bit about my journey of utilizing YouTube to not only promote my own content, but how you can use it to promote your own content. So uh, I don't want this section to be a discourage. I don't want you to feel discouraged when it comes down to developing content for YouTube, but I want to try to break down the steps of what it takes to put uh, valuable content that is going to be successful on YouTube so that you don't feel as though that you're just spinning your wheels and you're getting only a couple of views on your podcast or your maybe your your videos that you're sharing on to, to YouTube. I want to make sure that it's worth your while whenever you're creating this content for YouTube, okay? So let me just kind of give you an idea of, of how it all started for me when it came down to uh, starting up my own YouTube channel. I'll give you a brief history of what that looked like. So back in 2016, 2017, that is when I decided to go ahead and get serious and invest in myself when it came down to starting up an online business that taught podcasters about you know how to create more effective podcasts uh, and and to save their save themselves time when it came down to the podcast editing process. But I didn't have a podcast on my own. In fact, I didn't have the time, <clears throat> excuse me, to develop the podcast itself. But I did see that there was the success that my sister was having with YouTube itself. So we had been already spinning our wheels trying to figure out this online digital marketing game for the longest time. And um, she actually started with a podcast of her own. I believe she had a podcast called The Family Law Insider, um, which no longer exists anymore. But it was basically what you know I do for podcasters and what she does for uh, her clients who are going through child custody issues. She was just delivering value is all she was doing. But what we discovered was that, or at least what she discovered was that when she used YouTube, she got more bang for her buck when she created little four minute, five minute videos that were on YouTube that people could go in and watch. And so I started to gain this inspiration from my sister because I thought, wow, she's getting a lot of like views. And then eventually someone caught on to one of her videos, shared it out to their network, and then her channel just exploded with uh, subscribers. And I believe. Uh, back in 2017, 2018, I believe she had like 12,000 subscribers and since then. She's doubled that. Um, I believe she's up to almost 30,000 uh, subscribers now on her YouTube channel. That YouTube channel is called Command the Courtroom. I'll leave a link for that down in the description of this uh, particular uh, podcast. If you go into the app, you can find it there. But that's where I gained my inspiration. And I thought, well, if she can do this, I can definitely do this. But I thought... I probably should establish some authority as a podcaster if I'm going to create a podcast channel on YouTube about podcasting. And I thought, God, you know, and that was the thing that was kind of holding me back. But then I thought to myself, you know what? No, screw that. Because you know what? I've been in radio for almost 20 years at that time. It was at that time I was probably in my 19th, 18th year of radio. And I thought, you know, uh, I can do this because podcasting is almost an extension of radio and the information that I'm sharing about what I've learned in the radio industry can really apply to those who are going in and starting podcasts. So that's where this all started from. So from there, I went ahead and I started investing in learning more about uh, YouTube and getting my podcast into the platform and getting uh, awareness back to my website. So this is how it looked. 
So I wanted to start a YouTube that talked about podcasting, but I wanted that channel on YouTube to drive traffic back to my website so that I could get someone to get more value from my website, whether that be tips on tools or equipment that they can use for their podcast, whatever it may be, I wanted to share value. And when I had something even of more value, such as a training course, I offered that to them. And so that was how I was able to monetize off of my YouTube channel. That's all I wanted to do. That was the main goal. That still remains the main goal to this day. But now I have started to incorporate other areas in which I want to drive traffic to. So I want to drive traffic still back to my website, but I'm driving traffic to specific web pages. So like, you know, I want people to download my essential equipment guide list, or I want them to check out my monetizations guide, uh, whatever it may be. Or now it's to subscribe to the podcast therapist. So I utilize YouTube as a means to push traffic back to my website so where someone can learn all about me, all right? But along those lines, it took me some time to figure out a number of things. I mean, that's if there's any word that can describe what it would be, things. I hate using the word things because it's nonspecific. But I guess there were processes that I did not understand when it came down to developing content for YouTube. So for me, it was about developing a weekly video uh, that had me talking into a camera and discussed a topic that revolved around podcasting and I solved that problem. What I did not expect was the filming. I did not expect the editing. I did not expect the publishing. I did not expect any of that stuff. I did not expect what it was going to take to develop that content. So when a podcaster comes to me and says, I want to put my podcast up onto YouTube, they think it is as simple as putting a piece of audio up onto a YouTube channel that has a slate card with their show art and they call it a day. And I just tell them, no, that is not what YouTube is. That is not what it is. Podcasters will tell me, well, it works for me. I'm getting all kinds of views from this. But then I go back and I check their channels and I go, okay, well, maybe you've gotten a hundred views on this video, but it doesn't seem to be gaining any traction. The idea behind YouTube is to gain traction on your videos so that they can get recurring views over and over. That's all YouTube is about. But I I did not expect the editing portion. I had to learn editing software. I had to learn how to publish that onto YouTube. I had to invest in tools in order to get more traction to my YouTube channel or to my videos. But most importantly, I had to learn how to speak in front of a camera. That was a challenge for me. I was already comfortable doing it, but I had to be more comfortable when it came down to talking about a topic where I was solving a problem. So let's look at this from the podcaster viewpoint. Now that we have seen what my journey looks like and what my objective is, we need to start number one with what is your objective with your podcast? I talk about this all the time. If you still don't have an objective with your podcast, time to figure one out. Time to get on top of it because it just can't be for listens, can't be strictly for laughs and all this work that you're putting into the podcast, that's time and it's costing you money. Somewhere along the lines, it's costing you money. Whether you're using Anchor, you're probably spending it somewhere else on something else. So you're going to have to figure out 
what your objective is because likely your objective is to get the results that you deserve to get paid out in some form or another for your efforts. That's all it is. With YouTube, it's going to require you to have some patience. So this is where we would start if I were to sit down and consult with you, I would start here. Number one, I would start drafting out a list of 52 topics you can talk about onto YouTube and record a video for each one of those topics. The video doesn't have to be very long, it just has to solve a problem that someone is looking for on YouTube. Now, I'll get into how this applies to a podcaster, but this is what I'm gonna tell you right now. This is where I'm consulting with you, and this is typically where it scares people off because they realize how much work goes into it. Come up with 52 topics. And those topics should be very specific to solve someone's problem. So how do we find that? How do we figure that out? Well, I would figure out, number one, what is my niche? And then number two, go into YouTube and see if someone has answered a specific question that is asked within your niche. Put that in the search bar. See what the autocomplete comes up with. And then see if there are any videos that revolve around that common question if it doesn't exist, create it. It's all you're doing. You create it. So as a podcaster, how can you do this? Well, if I were you, and I am you because I am doing it right now, I would be creating and recording my podcast interviews, asking specific questions to my guests, and utilize those answers for YouTube to create videos to put onto YouTube. Must be moving pictures, it must be a, a split screen of you and your guests talking and bantering back and forth. People love to see this. Record the entire interview, then go back, take your video into some type of video editing software such as ScreenFlow for Mac, it could be Camtasia for PC, but if you're using something like iMovie or uh, Windows Movie Maker, you can just split this up very easily inside those platforms. Find the, the piece or the area or the question that you ask that solves someone's particular problem. Find that four minute thorough answer from your guest, render it down, and then start uploading it into YouTube. Now, this is not the only step that you're gonna do. I would go in and I would title the video the exact question in which someone might be searching for the answer. So I would ask that, I would make the title of the pot or the video the question that someone is going to be searching for. That's what I would do because that's what we tend to look for. We look for solutions on YouTube. We ask them in long tail phrases. That's what I would do. Then I would go into my description and I would leave links directly to my website where they can subscribe to the podcast, to maybe the blog in which that podcast is listed and they can listen to the entire episode, along with a 300 to 400 word description of what that video is all about and what it answers. Because that 
is how people discover your video. It's based on the metadata that you're providing onto the YouTube video. So that's what I would do. I would make sure that there are the appropriate tags for the YouTube video that relate directly back to the video. YouTube has said tags don't matter, but I still put tags anyway because I feel it does matter. It does help with the discoverability of my YouTube videos. And then from there, I would need to create a cover photo for the YouTube video, something that pops out in the search results so that someone can read what that video is all about. They're gonna look at the picture before they look at the description. That's what I do at least. So you need to figure out whether or not you need to be using Canva to create these cover art pieces. So once you've uploaded those, then you gotta go in and you have to start optimizing it even more. There are YouTube cards that you would have to use in YouTube to where you can use these cards that will direct, you, you've seen the cards before, they fly out at the top of the screen and typically they ask someone to take, a, a, take an action. There's typically calls to action to go somewhere else to watch maybe another video or to go to a website or to download something for free. That's what you could use YouTube for on, with those cards. And then of course you have the ability at the end of the video, if someone has made it that far, to promote more videos that you have on your channel, which will help with watch time, which will help with more views, which will help with more visibility of your video. It also will allow you to push people to go and download a guide or get on an email list in some way. Something like that, okay? Just doing something like that so that you are optimizing the video for more interaction with you. But podcasters come back to me and they say, well, I'm just gonna put the full 30 minute video up onto YouTube and it's just gonna have a slate card with my, you know, with my podcast art and then we're gonna call it a day. I'm gonna tell you this right now, 12, 14, 16 videos that are four minutes a piece do much better than one 30 minute video on YouTube. Because of the nature of how we consume video on YouTube, we consume shorter pieces of videos or shorter pieces of content and move on to the next onto YouTube because the watch time in YouTube's eyes is more valuable than the views. The watch time allows you to stay onto YouTube longer than it is with the views. Views don't matter, really. I mean, they do matter, but that is a metric that I think that is a big misconception with podcasters. They think, well, uh, it's just like downloads. Well, I've got 1,000 downloads. Okay, well, out of 1,000 downloads, how many people actually listen to the full episode of your podcast? The same concept applies with YouTube. The views are awesome, but how many people watch the video at length? How many of them watch the full video or how many of them watch at least 75% of the video? This is what's important here. And this is where I'm gonna tell you, the podcaster, this is why it's important. I don't think it's valuable enough to put your full audio up onto YouTube as a podcast with a slate card of your show art it's not valuable because they are not interacting with the video. It's just up as passive content. But when you're creating shorter videos, you're creating an activity on YouTube to where people are taking actions on the app itself, which leads them to either go back to your podcast and leads them to go back to your website, leads them to go back to downloading a guide. You want them to have an interactive process on YouTube as opposed to a passive process on YouTube. So let's do a real quick recap, all right? 
we're going to record an interview with a guest. Once we're done recording that interview, we're going to pull it down. Say we're using StreamYard, Restream.io, I don't know, Riverside.fm, Squadcast, whatever it may be. You're recording that interview, that podcast interview beforehand. You pull that video down, you find the clips that are going to be used as individualized shorter videos that you put up on to YouTube. You title your YouTube video to be a term in which someone is going to look up that is a common question within your niche. You title it that. Then you go into your description and you create all the valuable metadata along with a three to 400 word description of what that video is all about. And you add useful tags, tags that are about that video. Next, then you're going to go in and you're going to add uh, cards, information cards to lead people to either watch another video of your own or to go to your website to download something for free as it might relate to your video. So if you say in your video, you can go ahead and download this guy, just click the top left-hand corner of this video and it'll take you there. You can utilize that. Then the last 20 seconds of your video allow you to have more calls to action to watch more of your videos or to download a guide or go to your website. These are all valuable pieces of information that you need to have because what is valuable on YouTube is watch time. The more watch time that you have, not only on your channel, but the more watch time that you can refer onto another channel, it still counts towards your channel. At least this is what I can remember in the rules of YouTube. When you refer traffic to someone else's video, you're still getting the watch time. Now let's talk about live streaming. I hear podcasters say, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do a live stream on YouTube and then uh, we'll just live stream it to YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, everywhere. And that's my podcast. And you might have an audience that comes to live streaming uh, platform, the live streaming platform of their choice. But I have my own thoughts about live streaming. And I believe that live streaming should be used for individualized platforms themselves. So what do I mean by that? I don't believe that you should distribute your recorded podcast onto multiple platforms because you tend to uh, you, you're, you just tend to spread yourself too thin. There's philosophy on this that people can tell you, well, it works for me or it doesn't work for me. For me, I just don't look at it as a valuable asset because I live stream on Thursdays with my 98 KUPD audience. And that is just specifically for them. Me live streaming to not only my YouTube, to a Twitter account, like a Periscope account or LinkedIn about content that is specific about the radio station does not apply to those platforms. That's why I don't do live streaming to multiple platforms. My YouTube platform is specific for podcasters. That's what they're going to find. I've tailored that channel about podcasters. My Facebook lives on my Facebook page are all about 98KUPD and that brand. So it doesn't make sense for me to do an interview with a rock star and put it up on my podcasting channel when it doesn't talk about developing content for podcasts. But if you are going to live stream, this is what I think you should do when it comes down to live streaming and what you should be aware of. I've talked about this in the past in previous videos that I've done on my YouTube channel. What I've discovered when you live stream and you do a live stream with an audience, the audience goes there to engage with you. That's what they're there to do. They want to engage with you. And if you're not engaging with them, they pop out. 
You can't compare yourself to a Joe Rogan and you can't compare yourself to any other live streamer on YouTube. The only person that you have to compare yourself is to the person you are today and who you can change into tomorrow. Very inspirational, I know. But if you plan on doing live streaming, here are some things that you should take note of. You have to engage with your audience. So if you decide to do an interview, let your audience know that you're going to do an interview with your guest and you will be taking questions afterwards. So with these platforms or these services that allow you to stream to multiple platforms, they allow you to put these lower thirds on the screen for your your viewing audience. So you can put calls to actions on the screen by telling them, hold questions until after the interview. Or if you have a question, leave it in the chat section and I will answer it for you. Live streaming has become a very useful tool for interacting and building a relationship with an audience. So if you're going to do a podcast interview, do the interview first, then answer questions later. Plus, you can use that question and answer period as added content, maybe for your subscription plan that you're going to use for paid podcasting. Just something to think about. The last thing that I want to make note of when it comes to live streaming is that you hear me talk about the watch time of YouTube videos. Well, watch time with live streams are almost as valuable. Now, it seems kind of contradictory for me to say, well, if I upload a video that is 30 minutes long for someone to view onto YouTube, doesn't that directly contradict to having someone coming into a live stream and doing the same thing? They've watched the entire video. I guess yes. In other words, does it mean that I should leave that video up onto YouTube that has been live streamed? I don't. I don't like to leave those videos up. I just unlist them. But they help me acquire more watch time when they're done live. So I would much rather have that watch time when they're done live as opposed to just letting it hang on to my YouTube channel where the content is in in longer form. And that longer form content tends to be, it tends to not perform as well. As I said, I would much rather have, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 uh, videos that are four to seven minutes long as opposed to one 40 minute video because those shorter videos tend to keep people on the YouTube platform longer. And when you acquire the watch time, the better your channel shows up and the better it is for the algorithm. So I would do live streams for the watch time, but make it a regular and consistent habit if you're going to be doing a guest every week. Build the behavior of your viewers to know that you are going to be going live with someone on one platform. Now, if you've branded each platform Facebook, YouTube, uh, Periscope, LinkedIn, if you've branded that platform specific to one niche, then I say yes, put it to all those platforms. But if your platforms vary in nature, as far as niche is concerned, I would not distribute those live interviews on any, any of those platforms. I would distribute to them to the ones that matter. So I hope this gives you a little bit of insight as to what we're looking at when it comes down to YouTube. I don't want to scare you off when it comes down to developing content for YouTube, but you have to understand that the content that you develop for YouTube has to be more intentional than it is for just podcasting itself. YouTube is very specific because we search for things on YouTube. We search for things in Google and the consumption time is shorter 
than it is with podcasting, with audio podcasting. Audio podcasts tend to have a longer consumption time than videos. That's likely because it is allows us to move around the house, allows us to go for a run, a walk. We don't have to sit and watch it, right? So when, you know, no one wants to sit through a, a, an hour-long interview on YouTube because, to, you know, that's like a waste of time in their eyes unless they have the time to, to commit to watching a video on YouTube. But if it's an audio podcast, they're more willing to commit that to that time if they're able to multitask. So utilize YouTube as the content that you are going to develop to drive traffic back to people to listen to your podcast by developing shorter content that is actually with moving pictures with you interviewing someone else as opposed to uploading a full podcast episode with a slate card that does nothing. These are my very strong opinions about this because I've experimented with it on my YouTube channel and I know what works for my YouTube channel. I know what the algorithm likes. That's why I develop the content that I develop. So if you have questions about YouTube and YouTube marketing, feel free to reach out to me. Go to thepodcasttherapist.com, leave me a voicemail or leave me an email and I'll be more than happy to answer that question in a future episode of The Podcast Therapist. But I hope that this section about YouTube podcasting gives you a better insight as to what to expect when it comes to YouTube. I mean, there's some advanced plays that I really want to share with you, but it's not really for this episode. Coming up shortly, we're going to answer some viewer and listener questions in today's Unnecessary Explanations. Stick around. The Podcast Therapist. To a lot of you, coffee is the nectar of the morning wake-up gods, right? I totally love that feeling, just like you, of being awake, especially as I get older, adulting tends to get a little bit harder. It wasn't until I made a visit to the doctor a few years back and I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism and I had to give up all of the caffeine in my life, including coffee. You see, even though caffeine can wake you up and make you feel alive for some part of the morning, it also has side effects like the jitters, anxiety, and you'll get terrible sleep, all of the things that I was experiencing. That's when I discovered mud water. Mud water is a coffee replacement with one-seventh the caffeine of coffee that actually gives me energy, focus, and immunity without jitters, crashes, or a downside. So what's in it? Mudwater is a mixture of herbs, spices, and magic mushrooms that dial in on your immunity, boost your clarity, creativity, and your mood. I can't tell you how much of a difference it has made in my life in the last few months. So lose the jitters and find more focus with Mudwater. Get your Mudwater starter kit today at thepodcasttherapist.com slash mudwater. That's thepodcasttherapist.com slash M-U-D-W-T-R to learn more and get your first can and frother today. Unnecessary explanations. Unnecessary explanations.
You're always welcome to reach out to me at thepodcasttherapist.com and leave a voicemail or email. You hear me always talk about this. I encourage it and I will be more than happy to answer them, uh, your questions on a future episode of The Podcast Therapist. So uh, please do so. It could be about anything. I mean, you can ask me just about anything if you want. Uh, it's at this point, but uh, mostly people are looking for podcast production questions that, that need to be answered or what uh, it takes to start up their website. And, and I'm happy to answer that for you. So uh, I've got two emails I want to cover today. And and uh, I'm going to only cover a couple of questions in one of the emails. And then the other one, I want to go a little bit further and talk about someone wants you to buy uh, someone's podcast. So we'll get into that here very shortly. But the first email I want to jump into is someone from uh, named Donald. And uh, his email reads, hey, Shannon, I was listening to your podcast tonight and I enjoyed hearing about how you came up with its name. I was inspired to ask a few questions, although the answers might be obvious. The processes and detailed steps to get started uh, to getting started are rather unclear to me, and I would like to avoid making unnecessary mistakes if possible. Uh, number one, once a domain name is purchased from GoDaddy, is it yours, meaning unavailable to others across all other websites where people purchase domain names? So, uh, Donald, the answer to this question is yes. Once you purchase a domain name from GoDaddy, that domain name cannot be purchased through any other uh, provider. It cannot, you cannot go to Bluehost and try to purchase your domain name if you've already gotten that domain name. So like for the podcast therapist, when I purchased it through GoDaddy, you could not go to Bluehost. You cannot go to Whois. You cannot go to HostGator. When you purchase your domain name, you reserve that domain name um, and no one else can get it. So uh, that answers your question right there. He has a second question. Number two, if so, is it safe to begin building a presence and sharing business ideas with talented strangers on Fiverr and Upwork for website and logo logo designs? So the answer to this is yes, I would definitely uh, start working with your designers for from Fiverr or Upwork to start building out your website. They're likely going to help you build out a WordPress website, but if you want to go advanced and uh, want something that is a little more robust, go into something like Kajabi, that might be a little bit better for you The uh, whenever it comes to you developing your website. Uh, number three, his question says, uh, would you recommend going back and purchasing the remaining suffixes like .org or .net or is having a .com enough? Well, since you're just starting out, Donald, I would just say that um, having one domain is going to do it. Um, I guess if you're like a Facebook, I know they have they have purchased numbers of domains, misspellings of uh, Facebook so that the domain points back to Facebook itself. But in your case, you don't have to do that. That can cost a lot of money when you're purchasing multiple domains. So I would just say have your main domain. You don't need to get the .net or the .org or the you know .whatever it may be. Uh, you could just go ahead and have the main domain and just work from there. It should work out. But there are deeper strategies that you can utilize when it comes down to buying domain names, especially if you have digital products that you are purchasing. You could certainly utilize domain names in another uh, outlet as far as promoting those uh, products and services. That's a higher level thing that I can talk about at another time. And uh, we'll answer one more question. And he says, uh, have you found who, has protect who is protection to be secure and reliable? So from what I understand about who is, and typically when you purchase a domain name through GoDaddy or Namecheap or wherever it may be, you are asked to maybe sign up for privacy protection. And the way I have understood it, and maybe there's someone out there that knows it better than I do, but the way I have understood who is and the protection of your information 
is that when you purchase this as an add-on to your domain, it leaves your information private uh, or it keeps your information private away from marketers. So when I purchased the shanman.com and I purchased the podcasttherapist.com, I did not get this who is protection and I started getting marketed by a bunch of companies wanting me to, you know, go into their, you know, help build a website or anything like that. And so eventually I just purchased, um, I believe who is protection on one of them, I believe, and I don't get those emails anymore. So it does come in handy, I believe. Uh, so that's something that you might want to consider, but it is an added premium when you go in and you purchase your domain name for your podcast. So thank you for the questions, Donald. I really appreciate it. Next, I want to jump into a question that came in from Russell Corey. And Russell says in his subject line that somebody wanted to buy his podcast. That's what it's titled. Somebody wanted to buy my podcast. So this is what he had written to me. He said, Shannon, I was watching some of your YouTube videos and you mentioned that you should ask your listeners to reach out to you and that was something that you did. So I wanted to reach out to you and I wanted to tell you about a recent offer someone made me, uh, made to buy my podcast and get your thoughts. In October of 2019, I started the Stories for Kids podcast. I love writing at night and I had started uh, to play kids story podcasts for my kids when they went to bed. After listening to several of these, I thought I could do this, so I did. Over the next year and a half, I posted about 24 episodes of mostly original kids stories. Uh, while the podcast has gotten a small but steady base of 100 to 200 combined downloads and plays a day, I had never found a way to monetize it. So I would get sidetracked with other projects, hoping to bring in some extra income. Months were going by between posting new episodes, but the listeners kept going back to the podcast night after night. Then this past week, I got an email out of the blue from another podcaster that does kids stories. He noticed that I hadn't posted a new podcast since uh, since November and wanted to buy my RSS feed and a domain name for $1,000. I thought about it for a few days and I would be able to keep ownership of all my podcasts and characters. He really just wanted the RSS feed. I posted three podcasts while I was thinking the offer over and for those five days, my podcast averaged 147 downloads and 79 plays per day. And then, of course, he leaves me, uh, he left me some uh, statistics here. He wrote, In the end, I turned him down as I had never actually given up on the podcast. I just neglected to keep it current while I pursued other projects. I've decided to rededicate myself to the podcast and create a sister YouTube channel for it as well. I found your videos useful, but was wondering. If you had any advice for my situation and the best way forward to monetize a kid's story podcast. So this is a great question. It falls in line with today's episode. Russell, I hope that today's episode really helped you out. But to answer, I guess, a couple of questions about how to monetize it. So as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I talked about that platform, Supercast. And Supercast might be a way in which you um, are able to provide more advanced stories. It's for... Um, you know, for your podcasting audience, if you're getting that many downloads, typically the number of downloads that you might see as a higher conversion rate of getting people who will subscribe and contribute and pay for your podcast is a thousand downloads per episode. And even though that is a really good metric and that's a high metric that will show a lot of success, I, I say that you can always start at any time. Just know that whenever you're getting into paid you're you're getting into getting people into paying to listen to your podcast. It might be a slow growth when you first start out, but I would say you can go ahead and get started. I would look into Simplecast. I'm sorry, not Simplecast. I would look into Supercast, uh, the platform that I talked about earlier in this podcast, as a means to get people to 
subscribe to paid content or maybe additional stories that you might, might want to write out and put up onto that feed itself. That might be something of value. Uh, and then I would probably implement some type of ad strategy within my podcast itself so that there are ads in between or in the middle of the stories that might interrupt the uh, flow of the story itself. I mean, think about it. None of us like to be interrupted when we're watching a movie on TV. If it's for, you know, if we're watching something on TBS or maybe it's USA and it's some replay or rerun of a movie and it's coming to the best part of the uh, movie and then they cut directly to commercial. You could implement some type of strategy like that into those podcasts and that might work for you. As far as uh, creating an accompanying YouTube channel, I would say that if you're going to do that, um, I would implement the steps and the strategies that I mentioned in the mix down section of this podcast where you are creating content that might be a little more shorter form story. So maybe you're creating a 10 minute story and then leading people back to your website to where they can listen to your podcast or maybe leading them back to your podcast platform so they can listen to more extended versions of your podcast. Um, it's really going to be kind of up to you, but when you're developing and reading these stories, especially when it's something that is so utility based like yours, where you're creating stories for children and likely it's parents that are looking up this information information, they're looking for stories that they can tell their children. Maybe you create that exact YouTube channel. I don't know. I mean, it's going to have to be up to you, but I would really look into it and I would start titling out stories and making them searchable for uh, my viewing audience. And so I would use YouTube as a way to create free content to push them back to the paid content, if that makes any sense. So um, that is basically my opinion, really. So I certainly hope this out. I uh, hope this helps out. If you have a question for me, the podcast therapist, I'm more than happy to answer it for you. Just head on over to the podcasttherapist.com and leave me a email or a voicemail and I'll be more than happy to answer it for you. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. In the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. If you have any questions about anything whatsoever, again, you can always hit me up and I'll do my best to answer them for you. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week and we'll be talking to you next time. Take care. The Podcast Therapist. Mixed Down Media Productions.